That's Isaiah 44, starting at verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know, that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree, or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? So that's Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having been sent into Macedonia, two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods, and there is danger 
not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theatre, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theatre. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defence to the crowd. But when they recognised that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quietened the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here, who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Well, on your way to St. Helens this afternoon, I wonder, what did you see? Were you on the bus or the tube with everybody squeezed in beside you? Did you come via Oxford Street with all the shoppers rushing past? Did you see those queuing up to see Taylor Swift, the era's tour? Or maybe the excitement of the sports fans heading off to the match. Or were you obstructed by that demonstration in the square? As you looked out on this city, what did you see? As Christians, what should we see as we look out? Just this past week, I was cycling one evening through an unfamiliar but busy part of London. There were people, there were lights, there was noise filling the streets. It was bewildering. And maybe that's more like our experience more generally in this city as Christians. So many people, so much going on. What are we to make of it all? Well, Ephesus was a leading city of first century Asia. And today's passage is a bit unusual in Acts. Our author Luke spends quite a lot of time really just showing us city life. There's a riot, but at the same time, not that much happens What are we meant to make of it? Luke, I think, is hoping we remember what we've seen so far and then think, what do we see here? 
But notice first in verse 21, he sets the scene. We hear of the Apostle Paul's determination to go to Jerusalem and then Rome. And what's happening here actually is Luke is setting the agenda for the rest of the book of Acts. But as he does that, what's striking here is he also thinks, have you read his gospel? Listen to these words, which might sound familiar. Back in Luke 9, we were told, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You see the parallel between Jesus and Paul. And that's confirmed as you read on verse 22. Paul sends helpers on ahead of him. Which back in Luke 9, just when Jesus set his face for Jerusalem, he immediately sent messengers ahead of him. So as we go into this last section of Acts, Luke obviously wants us to keep this connection between Jesus and Paul in mind as we read on. But having said that, and if you like set the marker, set the scene, well, what happens next is surprising. And to confirm that, remember how we ended last week in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, that was a summary sentence. It finished off the last section in Acts because Paul had just ministered in Ephesus and all Asia for three years. Many people had heard the word, lives had been transformed, and then we get this summary statement. So just think how Luke has written this summary statement, plans moving on for Paul's travels, but then we just wait in Ephesus for a bit longer. So keep in mind, the gospel has already reached Ephesus, we've seen that, Luke knows that we know that. Something Luke wants us to see as we linger here a little bit longer, which I think will help us today. The gospel likewise has reached London. This city has a great Christian heritage. But like in Ephesus, not everyone in this city is a Christian, far from it. So what do we see here? A few things to pick out first. Can you see the money? Verse 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. So we're introduced to this Ephesian guild of silversmiths, their current master guildsman, Demetrius. And Ephesus is a very good place for this business. There are silver shrines of the goddess Artemis in high demand everywhere. Well, until, of course, the gospel reached Ephesus. Look at verse 26. Demetrius says, And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So Demetrius is right. Paul had declared the truth that the one God has revealed himself plainly in Christ. You to turn away from serving any other God. Which of course meant that the residents of Ephesus did not need their shrines of Artemis anymore. Which is going to hit the silversmith's bottom line. So it's interesting, isn't it? Demetrius, like the rest of Ephesus, is clearly a worshipper of Artemis. But he doesn't just worship Artemis. His concern is money. And we could say money is his idol, just like it would have been for all Ephesians, whatever their religious commitments. Well, all Ephesians except the new Christians. 
Do you remember what we saw last week, what the new believers did? The word silver came up again. There was those valuable magic books, which they realized were no good for anybody. Worth 50,000 pieces of silver, 5 million pounds. But the believers, when they didn't want those books anymore, didn't even sell them to others who would have wanted them, but they'd have been harmed by them. So instead, the believers burned them at great cost, all up in smoke, because the believers had found something or someone of more value. Well, it's the same today as in Ephesus. In any place where Christ is not served, there may be all sorts of gods, but at the same time, money will be served. The Bible describes covetousness as idolatry, and it really holds people in its grip. So much so that if the preaching of the gospel threatens that idol, big trouble, even a riot. Now, here in London, you are free to believe what you like. Everyone is very happy for you. Believe in Jesus, be spiritual, believe in aliens. It's all fine, as long as it doesn't affect them, and in particular, their income. Now, in the 19th century here in East London, a group of preachers went around with the gospel. It was a wonderful time. Lots of people were converted. But so much so, the pub landlords realized they were losing income because of this. So those very landlords sought out those preachers and sought to silence them violently. And so today, let's say the boss wants to hit that target, maybe make that bonus. Just cut this one small corner, he's made it. No big deal, everybody's doing it. But the Christian on his team won't do it. If the gospel took hold in London, in our society, what would happen? I guess compliance departments would be slimmed down for a start. There'd no be a need any longer for so many security guards or police or barristers. So-called entertainment centres here in the city would no longer be viable. So many websites would lose their traffic and their custom. That would all be great news, except for those whose income would be under threat. No doubt they'll do whatever they can to stop it. So can you see the money? Next, can you see the place? I wonder if you notice the repetition. So Demetrius there in verse 26, he speaks of Ephesus and Asia. Then according to verse 27, all Asia worships Artemis. Verse 28, again, Artemis of the Ephesians. Then verse 33, of the Ephesians in verse 35. The town clerk addresses the men of Ephesus. He then speaks again of the city of Ephesus. He delights in the temple that they have. Now, they were immensely proud of the temple. This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, even the most preeminent of them all, built of marble, Double colonnades all around, gilded with gold and silver, four times the size of the measly Parthenon in in Athens. It was bigger than a football pitch. And of course, that then led to the whole Ephesian way of life, their way of doing things. In fact, the Asian way of doing things. And people liked it that way. And the obvious implication of how Demetrius, the Ephesians, the town clerk are speaking, this message is a threat 
to our way of life. They didn't like it. It had to stop. Many today in London are proud, aren't they, of being Londoners. Maybe you are, whether born and bred in the city or now resident here. That comes across, you can see it at times like, well, 2012 Olympics, if you can remember that, and you were here, or state ceremonial events like we've had recently. London is where it's at. Or if we're not that fussed about London, no doubt there'll be affinity, whether it's to our nationality, to the place we grew up, or to our culture. Sometimes we claim we're not that attached to such things until we hear others treating whales badly. (laughs) But our diversity is God-given. But what's it for, ultimately? Do you remember what we were told by Paul back in Acts 17, speaking to the Athenians? I'll remind us, he said this. God made the world and everything in it and made every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. So what's good about each place and nationality and culture Well, that is a gift from God. We are to enjoy it. We can celebrate it. We can thank and praise God for it. But when every people group outside of Christ looks to those things, they turn them into idols. Even those distinctives, which are good and God-given, when we take them apart from God and hold on to them, they become our idols. And those idols, like every other idol, need to be challenged and dethroned and exposed because they are not God's at all. But what happens when the good news of the one true God is proclaimed to a particular people, when the truth that Jesus is Lord of all is proclaimed? Well, don't you know that is not how we do things around here? Don't you realize you're imposing your views on another culture? Typical colonial behavior. Just be quiet. So do you see the place? Next, do you see here the greatness? Our mayor, Sadiq Khan, describes London as the greatest city on earth, as you'd expect him to say. But ask any residents of Ephesus what's so special about their city. And again, did you notice the repetition? Demetrius, verse 27, speaks of the great goddess Artemis. He's not the only one, verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The same word comes again, repeated, verse 34, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Then in verse 35, the town clerk is at it as well, the great Artemis. We get it. The Ephesians think Artemis is great. But why? What's so great? I think Luke, with some irony, tells us the only reason given for this greatness comes from the town clerk, who in verse 35 speaks of this sacred stone that fell from the sky. Well, did that actually even happen? Or even if it did, what are we talking about? A piece of rubble? A little bit of a meteorite? Is that it? How about a resurrection from the dead seen by eyewitnesses? When our fellow Londoners, when we talk about greatness, when they talk about the things they think is so special about this city, what comes out? A bunch of men chasing after a pig's bladder. 
Or is it those few bricks and mortar that might one day have our name on the title deeds? Or is it that work position we might reach, and let's be honest, our tiny corner of the city? Is that it when it comes to greatness? Of course, some in Ephesus no longer looked to Artemis. They'd come instead to see true greatness. Again, last week, do you remember verse 17? We were told the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So whenever Londoners are going on and on about whatever they consider great, just remember what or rather who is greater. So do you see greatness? Next, do you see the community? Well, here in Ephesus, we see people gathering. First, we had that special interest group, the Shrine Makers, although really we've seen they were a self-interest group out after their own interests. But then we read on, and we notice how in verse 28 and 34, we had this announcement, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So maybe in between those two chants, we will see what this greatness looks like in practice with Artemis's followers. Well, what do we see? Verse 29, so the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater. And then verse 32, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Luke, if you like, is giving us a glimpse into a society where idolatry has taken hold. It's chaos. There's no peace or harmony. There is some sort of unity, but only in rioting and shouting other people down. But people want community. They say it. They really do. It's just the community we want seems so elusive. Can it be found? So we wonder, could there be in Ephesus or in London a gathering, an assembly of people that is ordered, united around what is true and good, and concerned for the interests of others? What could draw humanity together like that? Whose name would such a gathering extol? Do you see community? Next, can we see here who is in the know? Now, a city is supposedly full, isn't it, of movers and shakers, the high flyers, the the place where people know what they are talking about. Or do they? Well, listen again to Demetrius in verse 27, where he says, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Do you see the irony? Demetrius, doesn't he, speaks better than he knows. This temple of the great goddess Artemis may well be counted as nothing. She may well be deposed of her magnificence. No wonder how, no matter how many people currently worship her. In fact, Demetrius really is speaking better than he knows. Isaiah 40 is a chapter about idols. And the prophecy there is that one day idols will be counted as nothing. Well, Demetrius is telling us that day has come. And then I wonder, what do you make of the town clerk's question in verse 35? He says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis? Okay, well, sure, everyone knows about Artemis and the temple. 
But does everyone think that Artemis is great, even in Ephesus? Doesn't the town clerk know? Is he unaware of what's been happening in that very city for the last three years? Some there have a new name to extol as great. Town clerk goes on, verse 36, seeing then that these things cannot be denied. Cannot be denied? Really? What if they can be denied, and more than that, have been denied, again, in his very city for the past three years? Then there's that crowd, verse 32, where we're told straight out, they did not know why they had come together. But they weren't interested in being enlightened, so they were shouting down anyone who dared to speak. Two hours, this chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. If you're ignorant, start shouting. Love is love. Love is love. Don't you know? Love is love. Or diversity, equity, inclusion. Diversity, equity, inclusion. Stick to the mantra. Silence anyone who might talk some sense. So we see Ephesus is not in the know. Its gods are no gods at all. For all its self-confidence, its money, its sense of itself, its pursuit of greatness, its seeming unity, Ephesus is very much in the dark. And so for London, it's not in the know. Its gods are no gods at all. For all of London's self-confidence, its money, its sense of itself, its pursuit of greatness, its seeming unity, London, is very much in the dark. So what does the city need? Well, it needs lots of things, but at heart it needs the word of the Lord. So as we look in on Ephesus here, what are we thinking? What do they need in this city? And I think Luke, our author's aim, is that as we read this account, having seen Acts so far, the answer is, so to speak, screaming out at us. Because all through the book, we've seen the word of the Lord spread and increase and multiply. People have repented and believed. The name of the Lord Jesus has been extolled. Lives have been transformed. The world turned upside down. Eternities changed for the better. So as we read this, surely Luke is saying, isn't it your longing that someone, anyone, should step forward, speak up, so that these people can hear the word of the Lord. Now, as it happens, we've heard lots of voices in this passage. We've had Demetrius, we've had the crowd, we've had the town clerk. But what is really striking is who doesn't speak. There is Alexander, the Jew. He wants to say something, notice, to make a defense, but he fails But much more than that, in the midst of that, our main character from the last few chapters of Acts, the Apostle Paul, appears in verse 30. Notice what we're told. He wants to go in among the crowd. Why do you think he wants to do that? But he is stopped. First of all, by the disciples, but then by these Asiarchs. These are high-ranking officials in Asia. And both these groups, no doubt, mean well. They are concerned for Paul's welfare. 
But maybe for these Asiarchs in particular, the clue is in their name. Because, okay, yes, they are friends of Paul, but they too are concerned for the peace and their view of well-being in their region. They don't want this riot stirred up even more. They have no sense that what is really needed is the word of the Lord. So they tell Paul to be silent. Now in gospel ministry, there are moments to step back, to move on, to leave behind. We've seen Paul do that most recently in Corinth after the synagogue opposed him. But again, what do you think Paul wanted to do at this point in Ephesus? And in fact, we can find out. Because we read on in Acts. We know he's on his way to Jerusalem. Guess what happens when he gets there? A riot with confusion, with chaos. People shouting. Obviously, it all rings bells as we will read it in a couple of weeks' time. There in Jerusalem, the mob attack Paul. But again, he's protected by high-ranking people in authority. But this time, what happens next? Let's take a sneak preview. Just turn on to chapter 21 and verse 37. So look there. Paul said to the tribune, may I say something to you? So what did Paul want to say? Look at the end of verse 39. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. What did he have to say? Chapter 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And sure enough, Paul goes on to speak the word about the Lord Jesus. That's what Jerusalem needed because that's exactly what Ephesus needed. The word of the Lord. Paul has this clear priority. Even when tensions are running high, when he was in danger, he knew what they needed to hear. So London does need the word of the Lord. If we or others are forever waiting for that perfect moment to speak, in all likelihood it will never come. There may be inappropriate moments to speak, but there may also be many good opportunities. That is good opportunities when others will hear, even if not good for our personal comfort. So let's go back to Ephesus. Paul has spent three years there. We've just been told he's on his way. He's out of there, probably never to return. But we've seen Ephesus still needs the word of the Lord. What now? Well, again, Luke has been trying to tell us something. What Ephesus needs is the temple assembly. In this passage in Acts 19, Luke uses lots of gathering words. We've seen it already, the gathering and the assembling going on. But the sort of gatherings we've seen so far are marked by factions, disturbance, confusion, and rioting. And first response to all of that, you might have thought, well, maybe it would be better if just everybody kept to themselves, by themselves. But as we read on in this account, Luke keeps talking about assembly and putting it before us. Look towards the end of the passage, verse 39. The town clerk speaks of the regular assembly. And then verse 41, he dismissed the assembly. Why does Luke, as he writes this, keep wanting us to think about assembly? Well, I wonder if we've realized, which we should have done, because we know there is actually another gathering 
assembly already in Ephesus that he doesn't mention here. Although in case we've missed it, he does make it really clear. Turn over to chapter 20 and verse 17. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Or we might say the elders of the assembly. It's the same underlying Greek word in our passage. So Luke knows you've read chapter 19. You get to chapter 20 and he says, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the assembly to come to him. That is, there is an assembly in Ephesus that really matters the church. In fact, we could say that in Ephesus, there is another temple in town, not that temple of Artemis, but actually one far more impressive. God's people of every kind gathering around the word of the Lord because there you will find true and lasting, meaningful unity and community. The place where the word of the Lord is listened to and made known. So obviously this crowd in Ephesus don't realize it, but the action in Ephesus, the treasure, the temple, is that assembly. That church in Ephesus is the hope for that city. So is there hope for London? Yes. What does London need? The word of the Lord. But what does Luke show us here that God will use to get that word out to London? The assembly of his people, the church. Even a church like this one. So the question Luke wants us to ask and answer is, why has God put this assembly, this church, this group of people here in the heart of the city of London. Why do you think? I'll lead us in a prayer. Our Father, we do praise you for the greatness of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that the word about him is good news for all the people of London. And so we thank you for your churches, many of them that gather here in this city. Would you strengthen them? including us, to hold out your word? And would that lead to many more with us extolling the name of the Lord Jesus? Amen.